everybody and welcome to spooky show i'm your host kate (laughs) (laughs) um and welcome back i'm here with harrison today wait are we recording Mm -hmm. oh (laughs) i thought you were being funny i am being funny but i'm also being serious well yeah this is a super special spooky episode it is a spooky episode well it's kate's kate's birthday was this week and i wanted to Give her a week off from doing the show. So I have a case for everybody this week. Harrison's doing one this week. It's, I'm so excited. He's doing one I've never heard of. Yeah, this is a true crime story. Um, it's also like kind of a history story because mm-hmm. it's like the only of its kind documented in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. This case. And so today we're going to talk about the murder of Mary Fagan in 1913. Um, and this is Spooky Show, the spookiest show in the world ever in the universe, history of life. It sure is. I am usually your host, Kate, but today we have host Harrison. Correct. Um, and today, uh, just want to give you guys a heads up. This one has violence against children. This mm-hmm. one has racism. It has anti-Semitism. It kind of has, um, it, it, this is a really messy one. I had a lot of trouble, like, getting all the pieces together because there's just so much. So just be warned that this is like a really brutal, sad, fucked up story. We're doing one brutal one after another. I know, but this is a really fascinating one because a lot of people don't know about it. And I think it's really important that people know about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know about it either. So I'm going in this blind. Okay. So, I mean, before I get into kind of the story, I think it's like important to give some context to where we're going to be and what was going on in that time. So okay. this story takes place in Atlanta, Georgia, and thereabouts. And you said 18? In 1913. 1913. And thereabouts, okay. 1913. So kind of to understand, like, what was going on in Georgia at that time, uh, they, more so than a lot of cities, were kind of reeling from the big economic and social changes brought about by, like, the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, and Atlanta, in particular, had a massive boom uh, for demand in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So many families were leaving kind of the Georgian com- uh, countryside to move closer to the city and the factory district. And so it's also really important to note that back then, with little labor laws in place and the demand growing by the day, many of the most exploited workers in these factories were children. Um, right. And this exploitation led to a lot of deep-seated resentment by locals towards the rich factory owners who were not from the city often. And uh, these very quickly morphed into deeply anti-Semitic rhetorics, uh, where the even went so far as to there was a very famous labor meeting yeah. um, in Georgia in which one of the main topics of conversation was uh, blaming the Jewish factory owners for the exploitative labor practices. Okay, I was just going to ask why it was why anti-Semitism got involved, but. It was because the people who owned these factories were Jewish, it was and they were hiring. Lot, it, well, it wasn't all of them. It was that there was a, a decent percentage of people that they were bringing in from the north, right? And a a, a non small percentage of them happened to be Jewish. I it was, okay. I could not find the exact statistics, and just because that is a pretty anti Semitic like yeah, that's probably accusation. Yeah, they were about. all Jewish. Yeah, yeah it's a pretty that's ac- not they, true, right? And because it's like a pretty anti Semitic accusation log, I want to just market as that because mm-hmm. there was no statistics to back you know there's nothing to back that up right like besides just like these fucking hateful people being angry that they're being exploited you know yeah but one of the children that worked in these factories was a girl named mary fagan and mary was born on june 1st of 1899 into a family of well-established far- farmers in georgia her father passed away before the time she was born in the immediate aftermath of this mary's mother moved them both to be closer to her family in marietta georgia Mm-hmm. Sometime after that, they relocated to East Point, Georgia, uh, where her mom uh, briefly opened a child boarding house. During this time, uh, in order to help the, the house out, Mary would get her first job working at a textile factory. Um, years later, Mary's mom remarried, and they moved to Atlanta, where Mary took a job for the National Pencil Company. Uh, she made 10 cents an hour, and her job uh, was to literally fasten the erasers into the tops of pencils. Right. Uh, so things at the factory overall were going really well for Mary until April 21st of 1913, when a material sh- uh, shortage led to layoffs, including Mary. 
So in order to collect her final paycheck, Mary was said to have visited the factory at around noon on April 26, 1913. Now, keep in mind, she's 14 at the time. I was just going to ask that. And also, April 26, that's like mm-hmm. around this time. Yep. Kind of. Yeah. Wow. Um, at around 3 a.m. the next morning, Newt Lee, a custodian and night watchman at the factory, descended to the factory's basement to use the restroom. When he emerged... He ended up finding the body of Mary Fagan laying dead in the corner of the basement near the incinerator. In the factory? Yeah, in the basement of the factory. How long was he gone for? How long was he gone for? Yeah. We, we'll get there. Okay, I'm, like, the I'm already thinking, like, okay, how much time did this killer have? Like, At the like... time of the discovery, um, this is really graphic, folks, so please feel free to skip ahead a, a bit if you'd like to. Um, at the time of discovery, Mary's dress was pulled up around her waist. A strip from her petticoat was ripped off and tied around her neck. Her underwear was still on, but bloodied and torn. And there was a seven-foot wrapping cord pulled around her neck that was dug in over a quarter inch into her skin, suggesting a very violent strangulation. That was hateful. Yep. Her face was scratched and blackened. Her head was swollen and bruised. And other details at the scene led police to believe there was an intense struggle between her and the assailant. Police also discovered a ramp in the basement that led to an alleyway door that it turns out had been tampered with so it could be opened without unlocking. Uh, Mm -hmm. There were bloody fingerprints on the door, a metal pipe that had signs of being used as a crowbar. Uh, The police also had other pieces of evidence that they ultimately could not use because the crime scene was mishandled, including a trail of of dirt that was said to have had shoe tracks in it that was trampled through by officers when they arrived Uh, at the scene, and it was unidentifiable. Um, Next to Mary Fagan's head were two notes. Both notes contained... Mostly ramblings about racial, uh, racial epithets. So it was mostly just like um, very broken English. I, I was going to read them on here, but like me reading them would sound so fucking right, racist. Because make... it's like broken, like barely, like it's barely strung together sentences. There's misspellings. Um, they invoke the N word in it a couple times. Yeah. Um, but the one really important thing to note in this uh, is it contains the word night witch. Uh, which is that something that the police would assume to mean night watch. Right. Meaning that it was Newt Lee, the night watchman. Uh, because of the notes and the fact that Newt Lee discovered the body uh, and was the first to identify, this is a really fucked up um, fact. When the police initially arrived on the scene, her body was so mangled, blackened, and bruised, they didn't know sh- what her race was. Mm-hmm. And Newt was the first to identify her as being a white girl. Um, and Newt was the watchman who found her. Correct. So the police arrested Newtley and one of Mary's friends on Sunday. Uh, but by Monday, they were unconvinced that they were the culprits and now believed the murder to have taken place on the second floor near the office of the factory's superintendent, Leo Frank. Were there people in this factory? Like, wh- how did this, this- happen? This is an extremely weird story, and there's, like, really not a lot of information out there, and it only gets weirder. I know, I don't know this, but, like, okay, say, I know you're going to go into this, and I'm, like, maybe I'm skipping ahead, but, like, if, it, if she got killed on the second floor and then got dragged to the basement, like, what, who, so where, gonna, are, where is everybody? So I am going to pull up and read when we get to it. I'm going to pull up and read what the court-compiled timeline of the day is. Oh, okay, because awesome. It's, it's, and, and you'll see when we get there to kind of take that with a grain of salt, but um, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Okay, so they now believe that the murder took place on the second floor and someone dragged her body down um, to the basement. Uh, they found that, okay. uh, they believe that it may have taken place near the office of the factory superintendent, and his name is Leo Frank. Uh, Leo Frank was born in Cuero, Texas in April 17, 1884. His family moved to Brooklyn when Frank was just three years old. He attended New York public schools, graduated from the Pratt Institute in 1902, uh, briefly served as a draftsman and a test engineer. However, upon the invitation of his uncle, Moses Frank, Leo moved to Atlanta to work for the National Pencil Company, where he would rise to factory superintendent after just nine months. Mm -hmm. Also important to note, his wife, Lucille Selig, comes from a prominent family of Georgian Jews who established the first synagogue in Atlanta. Uh, Leo Frank was also elected president of the largest Jewish fraternal organization in the American South at the time. This will be important later. Okay. Now, after the discovery of Mary Fagan's body, 
newly allegedly called Leo Frank twice. After discovering her body. After discovering the body, correct. That night. Yeah. Once was upon the immediate discovery of the body in the basement. Right, yeah, you gotta call the super, you gotta call the the man in charge. Correct. And the second was shortly after 4 a.m. when the police arrived at the scene. Sorry. (laughs) What time was her body discovered? So, she went to the factory, the timeline that we know of right now that I've established. She went to the factory at noon. Uh, she was not reported being seen since and was discovered at about 3 a.m. Oh, okay. Okay. So I was like, why did hour, police get there? So within about an hour, Newtley called Leo Frank twice. Right. Okay. Uh, later, around 7 a.m., the police were finally able to get in contact with Leo Frank, and he agreed to accompany them to the factory. At the time, the officers provided little to no reasoning behind their need for Leo Frank to come down. They just said, something terrible has happened at the factory. We need your help. According to police accounts, when they arrived at the factory, Leo Frank became extremely nervous, trembling, pale. His voice was hoarse, and he was rubbing his hands and and asking questions before the police could answer. Frank said he was not familiar with the name Mary Fagan and would need to consult his record books. Frank was then shown the body and was asked to show the police around the building, which he did. And he was later released at around 1045 a.m. At the time, he was in no way a suspect in the case. Right. Um, so being smart and incredibly well-educated man, he smelled trouble. Leo Frank was like, I, a girl just got murdered in my building. They're interviewing me like they think that I did it. Yeah. So he contacts the Pinkertons. Do you know what the Pinkertons are? No. The Pinkertons are like, uh, uh, do you know what Blackwater is? Blackwater is like a, a, mil- a private military organization uh-huh. that the U.S. contracts. The Pinkertons are a private detective agency that gets contracted out by powerful companies. By I know mean, Amazon has famously used them to try oh. to break up their union efforts, etc. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the first thing that happens is Leo Frank contacts his lawyer, who advises him to give a written signed deposition of all the activities that he can recall from the day of the murder. His account is that he said that uh, after checking his records that Fagan was in his office between 12.05 and 12.10 p.m., that he had seen Newt Lee arrive at 4 p.m., but was asked to return later, and that Frank had had a confrontation with an ex-employee at around 6 p.m. as Leo Frank was leaving and, and Newt Lee finally arrived for the day. So, like, Newt showed up early, tried to work, and Leo was like, nah, you can't work right now. Because, you know, they're having money problems. Like, they just laid off a bunch of people. Yeah. Was, so, Leo Frank said that Mary went into his office at yep, 12? to see him for 10 minutes. Well, I thought he was like, I don't even know who this girl is. But he checked his records because he oh, was saying. Oh, okay. Because he's like, you know, you got to think, so many this names. guy manages the factory. He probably has a million workers. This is just one person who puts, you know, erasers to pencil caps. And maybe he saw her to hand her a check earlier that Right, day. right. You know, and, and a lot of people at that level. You know, if you went three or four people up from you, I don't know, would they know who you were if you came to get a check from them? <laughs> Probably not. Right. The other thing that, that Leo Frank explained in this deposition is that Newt Lee's time card from that night has several gaps, meaning he's supposed to punch in at that pencil factory every half hour to check the hours, and there's several par- parts where that did not happen. Uh-huh. And the other really weird thing that his lawyer had him do was expose his body to demonstrate that he had no cuts or yeah. injuries. Well, if she, you said there was a struggle, so the person Correct. Was, would probably have marks on them. That's very common. Yeah. Uh, and another thing of note, uh, that the police found no blood stains on the laundry at the Frank's house in any way. Okay. So to further prove his innocence, like I said, Leo Frank hired a Pinkerton, <laughs> uh, which is a private contractual detective agency, to try and help to solve the mystery and clear his name completely. The detectives would investigate everything from the hard evidence they had at the factory to hearsay rumors and allegations about Frank's sexual misconducts. Oh, God. Legally, the Pinkertons were required to supply duplicates of their evidence to the police, a fact unknown to Frank, and this included potentially damaging information about Frank's character. It should also be noted that Detective Harry Scott, one of the two detectives um, from the Pinkertons hired by Leo Frank, was very, very good friends with Atlanta police detective John Black, who was an early adopter in the belief that it was actually Leo Frank who killed Mary Fagan. Mm -hmm. So these detectives are finding out that he has, like, a shady past, and they're like, well, "Well, we're going to have to expose this. 
And Leo Frank doesn't know? Yeah, well, so, yes. So basically he says, you need to, I want my name cleared from this. I had nothing to do with this. I want my name cleared. Yeah, like proof by innocence. Go crazy. Ask everybody the worst things you, they, you can hear about me. And so that's what happened. They did a thorough investigation. And, you know, um, there's reports in the town that he was a very quiet to himself, kind of antisocial kind of guy. And a lot of people had created narrative about him in the time in the time to fill in the gaps. So it wasn't true. None of them were corroborated. Oh, okay. They were just allegations. So, so they have to report so, everything yeah. they found. So even if someone said it and it wasn't, they didn't were right. able to follow through. They still have to report that to the police. Right. Also, remember what I said earlier about the hatred for the factory workers or factory owners. You, you are right. You are correct. Um, in the midst of this investigation, on Tuesday, April 20th, 1913, the aforementioned John Black, the friend of the Pinkerton, searched the property of Newt Lee and found a bloodstained shirt at the bottom of a burn barrel on the property. The blood, weirdly, was high up on the armpits. Yeah. And police noticed that the shirt smelled unused. Which led to further suspicion that Leo Frank may have planted the shirt based on his suspect activity in the wake of the investigation. Yeah, because I, well, I was going to say, why, like, yeah, he had a shady past, but why is everyone like, it was Leo Frank? Like, well, the police he, are very much. Because he's the factory owner and people hate him? Could be said that. Could be said that. Okay, and so on that same day, 45 minutes after the discovery of the shirt, Leo Frank was arrested. This. Doesn't make any sense. Yes, and you're going to find out. You're going to find out why it makes no <laughs> <Okay>. sense. Okay. <laughs> so they arrested Newtley and they arrested Leo Frank. This decision was said to have been due to Frank being the last co- corroborating witness to see her alive. Right. His meetings with the Pinkertons, which they thought were suspect, and his connection with Newtley. Uh, the police attempted to turn Lee and Frank against each other once in custody. Mm-hmm. Um, even arranging a confrontation between the two men, attempting to entrap them. However, um, I searched and searched, and you cannot find any details about this meeting. Like, almost every single thing is like, details about this meeting are hazy. Details about this meeting have never really been released. Interesting. I wonder what happened. Um, at the time, APD was convinced that Frank and Lee had worked together, and Frank was attempting to leverage his social status to pin the entire thing on Lee. Upon detainment, a coroner's inquest began. A young man said that Fagan had, and they found in this coroner's inquest, that a young man had said that Fagan had complained to him about Frank. Several former employees spoke of Frank flirting with other women. One said that she was actually propositioned. The detectives admitted that, quote, they so far had obtained no conclusive evidence or clues, however. At this time, the case started to gain national attention when William J. Burns traveled to Atlanta to assist. Um, he was like a big, prominent Chicago lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is another thing to put a pin in. However, he would very quickly leave the case, stating that he came down here to investigate a murder case, not engage in petty politics. Interesting. We're going to divert very briefly. I have one more character to introduce into this okay. story. I mean, I have two, but one isn't the only, there's only one named character to introduce. So the prosecution, they obviously, they indicted Leo Frank. The prosecution based much of its case around the testimony of a factory janitor named Jim Connolly. Uh, the police arrested Connolly on May 1st after he had been seen washing red stains out of a blue work shirt. Okay. Detectives examined it for blood, but determined it was just rust, as Connolly had claimed, and returned it. Okay. Did Connolly, they let him go? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. Connolly was still in... He, they did not, sorry. I got it. This re, the reading ahead thing and answering questions is hard. I'm, like, having a new gain, newfound respect for you massively. Well, I always say, when you ask me questions, that were, I, just, I always just say, we'll get there. But, like, it's hard also not to... I know we're going to get there, but I'm, like, so... I'm, like, but this what about this? Case. But what about this? I know. And it has an insane ending, too. Jim Connolly, uh, obviously, after this incident, he was still in police custody two weeks later, and he gave his first formal statement. Why is he in police custody? It was rust. He said that on the day of the murder, he'd been visiting saloons, shooting dice, and drinking. His story was called into question when a witness told detectives that they saw a black man dressed in dark blue clothing and a hat in the lobby of the factory on the day of the murder. Jim Connolly is black. Correct. Okay. I was getting, I was going to get to that point in just a brief second. Yeah. So was Newt as well. It should be important. Newt Lee and Jim Connolly are black. Leo Frank is white. Okay. 
Reconstruction era Georgia, post-Civil War era Georgia, anti-Semitism Georgia. There's a lot of factors at play. Fucked up Georgia. This is a crazy, I mean, like, there are so many factors at play. Still fucked up Georgia. Still fucked up Georgia. <laughs> we love Johnson, you to all of our Georgia Kendrick friends. Johnson. Another interesting fact that is that upon further investigation of this lead and, and more interviews with Jim Connolly, they determined that he could read and write. And there were similarities right. in his spelling with that found on the murder notes. Oh. On May 24th, he admitted that he had written the notes swearing that Frank had called him to his office the day before the murder and told him to write them. After testing Connolly again on his spelling, he spelled Night Watchman as Night Witch. Yeah. And the police were convinced he'd written the notes. I mean, that's pretty damning. Now, they were skeptical about the rest of the story because it didn't only imply a premeditation by Leo Frank, but it also suggested that, like, Leo Frank had gone to this night, this janitor, and just confessed this murder to him, premeditated, Random. and got him involved in it. Well, he probably wanted, like, a, um, he probably wanted a scapegoat, and, right? Mm-hmm. So you ready for the, the stuff to start, wheels to start getting weird? And <laughs> it shit it already is weird. <laughs> it's a weird case, right? Yes. Jim- it's also just... Sorry, but it's also just so random, too, that it's, like, this little, this poor, poor, poor little girl who, like, underwent such a horrible murder, and it's, like, all of this is, like, at what cost? What was this for? We'll probably get there, but I just... My yep. brain is not making... There's no connections are being really made in my brain. I hope I don't disappoint. <laughs> are you going to disappoint truly, me? I, well, I don't think you know how this is going to end. No, I don't. And I really don't think you know... Like, I, I, Okay. Um, so, obviously, they became suspect of that. Now, Connolly issues a second affidavit, second sworn mm-hmm. affidavit statement. And uh, this is his third statement to the police and his second sworn affidavit, okay? He admitted that he lied about meeting with Frank on Friday, where Frank discussed basically premeditating the murder, right? Okay. He now says that he met Leo Frank on the street on Saturday, and he was told to follow him to the factory. Frank told him to hide in a wardrobe to avoid being seen by women who were visiting Frank in his office, and he said that Frank dictated the murder notes for him to write, gave him cigarettes, and then told him to leave the factory. Connolly said that he then went out drinking and saw a movie, and he did not learn about the murder until he went in to go to work on Monday. The police were satisfied with this new story, and now introduced the last new character kind of of this tale, which is the media. Now, the media goes absolutely fucking bonkers. They give front-page story to this, um, and... In all of this, while it's running on the front page, Leo Frank, murderer, Leo Frank, lecherous, like, pedophile, all this crazy shit. While this is running, there's officials at the pencil company writing to the journal and the courier telling them, this is not, this is not an accurate account of this man. Yeah. Like, like, the man you are describing is in no way the man that anybody who encountered him on a, encounters him on a daily basis would speak of him. Now, these um, officials from the pencil company were actually arguing a different set of events may have occurred that night. They believe... Like other workers there? Yeah. Okay. They believe that Connolly had followed another employee into the building intending to rob her, but found that Fagan was an easier target. Now, the police placed little credence in that theory, um, but they had no explanation for the failure to locate Mary Fagan's purse that other witnesses said she was carrying that day. They also had concerns that Jim Connolly didn't mention that he was aware a crime had been committed when he wrote the notes, suggesting that simply Leo Frank, like, just told him, hey, can you write these, like, weird notes for me? Yeah. You know? He didn't mention, like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. He just said, like, hey, Leo Frank asked me to just write these notes or whatever. Yeah, like, can you just write this on a piece of paper real quick? Uh Uh-huh. To resolve their doubts, the police yet again attempted to organize a confrontation between two people, um, and they tried to arrange a confrontation between Leo Frank and Jim Connolly. And Leo Frank exercised his right not to meet with uh, him because he wanted his attorney, and the police are literally quoted in the Atlanta Constitution for saying that this refusal to meet with Jim Connolly was an indication of Leo Frank's guilt. Okay. Not uh, not not necessarily law not and order. I don't the think. best, yeah. I disagree. <laughs> okay, so 
A little while later, a couple weeks later, May 29th, Jim Connolly is interviewed again for four hours. Mm-hmm. His new affidavit. Oh my gosh. Yep. Says that Frank told him, quote, he had picked up a girl back there and let her fall and that her head hit against something. Connolly said that he and Frank took the body to the basement via the elevator, then returned to Frank's office where the murder notes were dictated. Again, a completely different story from the last two. Yeah. Connolly then hid in the wardrobe after the two had returned to the office. He said Frank gave him 200 bucks, but took it back saying, let me have that and I will make it all right with you Monday if I live and nothing happens. Connolly's affidavit concluded, the reason I have not told this before is because I thought Mr. Frank would get out and help me out and I decided to, the, uh, and I decided to tell the whole truth about the matter. Uh, at the trial, Jim Connolly would later change his story about the $200. Um, and he said that Frank decided to withhold the money until Connolly burned Fagan's body for him. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are a lot of stories floating around out there on this one. Yeah, this is a weird one. Are you ready? We're going to get into the trial now. Okay. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to try to hone in now, okay? Yeah. Oh, actually, I want to note this, too. Um, so, so they hired representation for Jim Connolly. Yeah. And the person they hired was known for representing black clients and successfully defending a black man against an accusation of rape by a white woman. Um, he had also taken an elderly black woman's civil case as far as the Georgia Supreme Court. And they believed that Connolly had told the truth in his final affidavit, but he became concerned that Connolly was giving long jailhouse interviews with crowds of reporters. He was anxious oh about reporters at the papers who had taken Leo Frank's side, and he arranged for Jim Connolly to be moved to a different jail and basically cut him off from the media. Okay. Now it's trial time. I mean, yeah, that's probably fair if, if he was if he was going out there and talking to them. Yep. Not saying he was. All right, you ready for the trial? Yeah. It's a lot, I know. This is a crazy convoluted story, but I promise you it's leading somewhere. Yes, I, I, I have faith. What happened to Newt? Uh, he kind of, he, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. He, he's oh, he comes back. back, okay. <laughs> so uh, on May... 23rd, 1913, the grand jury convened, and they heard evidence in the indictment uh, against Leo Frank for the murder of Mary Fagan. The prosecutor, his name was Hugh Dorsey. He was kind of known as this big showboat lawyer who was known to put on these huge show, these huge dramatic shows in courtrooms, like people crying, breaking pencils, like throwing stuff. He's like a big, you know, like— it's a performer. I mean, he is like the— um, He's like the epitome of the Southern lawyer. I do declare we will have justice in this courtroom. Like that's, that's what he is like. He's that kind of guy. So Hugh Dorsey at the grand jury indictment presented only enough information to obtain an indictment, assuring the jury that additional information would be provided during the trial. The next day, the jury voted for an indictment and Frank's legal team began to suggest to the media that the actual killer might've been Jim Connolly and put pressure on another grand jury to indict Jim. Now, the jury foreman, on his own authority, convened a jury to do this on July 21st. Okay. However, on Hugh Dorsey's advice, the prosecutor, they decided to not indict Jim Connolly. I thought they, I thought Jim, I thought Hugh Dorsey wanted them to. No, Hugh Dorsey wanted them to indict Leo Frank. Oh. So Leo Frank was indicted. Leo Frank's legal team went to the media, went to the uh, grand jury and lobby and said, you guys need to indict Jim Connolly. He's the real killer. Right. The jury, on their own accord, convenes to vote on this, and Hugh Dorsey, who is the prosecutor in the case, says, don't do this, and they don't do it. Okay. So, the trial begins in July, and this is really crazy because they, Leo Frank in Georgia, and like, you know, pretty poor Georgia, he had a team of eight lawyers, including jury selection specialists. I mean, he's a hotshot factory owner. Um, correct. Now, by this time, the case had gained such attention that there were massive hundreds of people outside of the courthouse every day waiting to hear news about the trial. Um, it became basically a kangaroo court. I mean, it was chaos. I mean, people like screaming outside every day, people standing up and freaking out in the courtroom. Um, were they selling merch? Uh, they will be later. Around I freaking knew else. it. I freaking knew it. Um, the defense, uh, in their legal appeals, cited the crowds as a factor of intimidation against the witnesses and jury. Um, obviously, they, they appealed. So this is really important to know. And this is why I went into kind of the background of the case, uh, of like the socioeconomic conditions of the case, because this is really important to note about this case. 
So both legal teams in their planning for the trial strategy considered the implications of trying a white man based on the testimony of a black man in front of early 1900s Georgia juries. <laughs> Jeff Melanick, an author of Black Jewish Relations on Trial, um, who wrote a a piece about this yeah. um, writes that the defense tried to pick uh, the defense tried to paint Connolly as a new kind of African American anarchist, basically anarchist, degraded, and dangerous. And Dorsey, um, however, tried to paint Jim Connolly as a familiar type, uh, and it was quoted as saying, "like a minstrel show performer or plantation worker," which is really you know cringe and fucking horrible. But like that is what the defense or not the defense the prosecution tried to do yeah. was paint this guy as like literally a cartoon okay of a of a black person in america at that time right you know fucked up messed up <laughs> yep dorsey's strategy played on the prejudices of white georgians um like that black men could not have the intelligence to make up that much of a complicated story that the prosecution argued that jim Connolly's statement explaining the immediate aftermath of the murder was true that frank was the murderer and that frank had dictated the murder notes to Connolly in an effort to pin the crime on newt lee the night watchman oh my so they're God. still sticking to their original story right they've just now like they've kept this original story of it was leo frank and Newtly together, right? Yes. And now they have all this evidence from this other guy, and they've just made up another narrative to add into this to uh, bring him in. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, oh, it wasn't Newt who wrote the notes, though he's still guilty, even though he can't read or write, but it must have been this other guy, and he must have done it in this office, like, a day before, or, like, you know, it's, they're now just making shit up, basically. That's, uh... <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yes. How is this allowed? Like, this is not right. But the, you know what? It does remind me of um, the Adnan case. Yep. With, like, Jay, and he's telling so much, so many different stories, and it's just so many stories out there. Everyone's got a piece of information. Yeah. So throughout the trial, um, they basically corroborated, obviously, that uh, through bloodstains and strands of hair found on the second floor that the murder must have occurred up on the second floor in the machine room near Leo Frank's office. Uh, the defense denied this. Both sides contested the significance of physical evidence that suggested the place of the murder. Material around, uh, the material that was found wrapped around Mary Fagan's neck was actually shown to be present throughout the entire factory, so it could have occurred anywhere. The prosecution interpreted the scene in the basement to support Jim Connolly's story which was that the body was carried there by the elevator, while the defense suggested that the drag marks on the floor that had been obstructed from earlier, remember that? Yeah. Indicated that he actually carried the body down a ladder and then dragged it across the floor. The defense argued that Connolly was the murderer and Newt Lee helped Connolly write the two murder notes. And the defense uh, also brought many witnesses to support Leo Frank's account of his movements, which indicated that he literally would not have had enough time in his day to commit the crime. Yeah. Yeah, because you said he was... Oh, no, I'm getting confused. Carry on. He was there for like five hours, and yeah. there were a lot of other people there during that time. And then again, to support that theory that it was Jim Connolly, they argued that Mary Fagan was murdered in a robbery. They focused a lot on the missing purse. Uh, to, to counteract this, the prosecution had Jim Connolly claim that he saw Leo Frank place the purse in his office safe, which was never found there. It's not even a robbery kind of murder, though. Yeah. You don't murder somebody like that in a robbery. Now, while all this is going on, and I remember I mentioned this guy's a, a showboater, the prosecutor, Hugh, Hugh Dorsey. Yeah. He starts accusing the Frank team of bribery, of extortion, um, all of which have been... Completely unfounded. Mm -hmm. He has girls from the factory come in and uh, who were very obviously coached to say almost the exact same thing. Right. Present stories that suggested that Leo Frank had like tried to assault women in the offices before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All this to be said, at the end of the, the trial, after just four hours of deliberation, the jury reached a unanimous guilty verdict convicting Leo Frank of murder. Okay. So then the appeals process begins. Yeah, I don't... What? There's no... Uh, there, <laughs> my brain is, like, yeah, so trying much. to piece everything together about, like, what was real, what didn't happen. Okay, because I'm, in my head, I was about to say, there's no evidence against him, but was, 
the the shirt was found at Leo's. Oh no, no, no! The shirt at was New found Leeds. at Newt's, and they thought that. So the so the only evidence they ever really had. Yeah. Was... What? How? How was he guilty? Okay. So we're gonna get into kind of the aftermath of all of this. So essentially, like they went through multiple processes of appeals on this case, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Throughout all that, you know, tens of thousands of pages of new information came out, um, still really leading nowhere. Yeah. Now, when the judge in the case was on his deathbed, he wrote a letter to the governor of the state saying, uh, given like the things that have come out in these appeals, I cannot die like with this on my conscience. I believe that Leo Frank is an innocent man. Wow. Um, At this time. The governor of uh, Governor Tom, Tom Slayton, John Slayton of Georgia commutes Leo Frank's sentence mm-hmm. from death to like a like a life sentence. And then he can then appeal from there further. Okay. Right. So they start the process around this time. The media gets reinterested in the case, specifically a man named Tom Watson, who's like a religious zealot who ran a religious paper. And he starts advocating for the lynching of Leo Frank. Okay. On June 21st, 1915, the commutation of Leo Frank's sentence led to Tom Watson, uh, who wrote for the Jeffersonian and Washington Magazine, to advocate for Leo Frank's lynching. He said, quote, This country has nothing to fear from its rural communities. Lynch law is a good sign. It shows that a sense of justice still lives among people. A group of men organized themselves into the Vigilance Committee and openly planned to kidnap Frank from prison. They consisted of 28 men with various skills. An electrician was to cut the prison wires. Car mechanics were to keep the cars running. There was a locksmith, a telephone man, a medic, a hangman, and a lay preacher. So they were going to do like an underground lynching? Uh Uh-huh. The ringleaders were well known. Breaking this man out of prison? After he got commutated, yep. So the names of these people were not known until June 2000, which is very interesting. Yeah. And on the afternoon of August 16th, eight cars of the lynch mob left Marietta separately for Midgeville, Milledgeville. They arrived at the prison at around 10 p.m. The electrician cut the wires. Members of the group drained the gas from the prison's automobiles, handcuffed the warden, seized Frank, and drove away. They took a 175-mile trip for seven hours at a top speed of 18 miles per hour through small towns on back roads. Lookouts in the, t- in the towns telephoned ahead to the next towns as soon as they saw the line of cars pass by. A site at Frey's Gin, two miles east of Marietta, had been prepared, complete with a rope and a table supplied by former Sheriff William Frey. The New York Times reports that Frank was handcuffed, his legs tied to his ankles, uh, and he was hanged from a tree branch at around 7 a.m., facing the direction of the house that Fagan had lived. Oh, my God. The Atlanta Journal wrote that a crowd of men, women, and children arrived on foot, in cars, and on horses, and that souvenir hunters cut away pieces of his shirt sleeves. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> they said that there was a, an onlooker who wanted to have the body cut up into pieces and burned, and he began to run around whipping up a mob. Um, when the body came down, people stamped on his face. Is this allowed? It gets crazier. Okay. Once the bad body got back to Atlanta, thousands, thousands of people descended upon the undertaker's parlor, demanded to see the body, and began throwing bricks um, at the undertaker's house or the undertaker's um, parlor, demanding to be able to see the body. And they let them. They let them all file past. Uh, they then. They took the body up to New York, where he was buried uh, next to their parents' graves. Now, there was a grand jury convened to indict the lynchers. Yeah. Um, And while they were all well-known locally who they were, none were identified. And some may have served—some of the lynchers, it's it's thought, may have served on the very grand jury that was set to indict them. Oh, my gosh. Like we said, souvenirs, several photographs were taken of the lynching and were published and sold as postcards in local stores for 25 cents Uh. each. Pieces of the rope, Frank's night shirt, and branches of the tree were sold. And still to this day, it's unknown who the real killer of Mary Fagan is. 
America is fucked. Um, but I will say this this case is particularly interesting to me. I have done a musical two times. It's based on this story. Yeah, it's and, very um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, and so the, this show's really interesting in that, like, the first... Or, uh, and, um, what's the one? With the... Inherit the Wind? No, um, Matthew Shepard. Oh, Laramie. Yeah, 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 Laramie Project. Yeah, it's actually, so, you know, it's a little bit... I mean, it's like yeah. a big... Um, it's Jason Robert Brown's show, and it's about... Love, love JRB. And, you know, it's sort of, sort of structured as, like, the first half is sort of, like, the events leading up to the indictment, and then the second half of the first act, like, there's, like, a 30-minute one-room courtroom scene. Um, and then the second act is sort of about the appeals process, and it ends, obviously, with him being lynched. Um, I will say the one silver lining that comes out of this, the only good thing that came out is that I, I'm sure you've heard of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, yeah. um, and the Southern Poverty Law Center. Yeah. Those were both, those both blossomed out of this event. Um, yeah, this is good. the only known, and the reason this is the one of its kind is it is the only recorded lynching of a Jewish person on American soil. Wow. In our history. What do you think? What do I think? Yeah. Um, well, historians technically believe that it was Jim Connolly. I should, I should have said that. I, was, I, I had it in my notes. No, it's like, nice to say for this. the end. Yeah, so, they, the, so it's not really clear. Um, there's a really great book that a lot of my research, I, I tried to compile the start with like a timeline of the crazy shit I remembered from this book that I read and then went back from there of kind of refining the information. But there's a really wonderful book on the case um, that Steve Oney wrote. It's called um, And the Dead Shall Rise. And it's all about this case. And it really goes in depth about um, kind of a lot of the other sub stories that I was like having trouble, like sussing out what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, like it condensing. has a lot about specifically about the factory girls who ended up being used by the by the prosecution to lie about Leo Frank. It talks a lot about the theories behind um, Jim Connolly and, and what really happened. And it goes into depth a bit about um, the specific journalist figures that ended up like muck, like raking up a lot of muck about this. Um, and there's also some really absolutely stunning photos of like the funeral and like of both the funeral of Mary Fagan and the funeral of Leo Frank. I mean, it's a really incredible powerful it's book. so sad that this poor 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 girl like and we don't know like yes and that she's why, not even like yeah. by the end of the story you, you forget don't even, that it's about this, this yeah, girl yeah. yeah it's so sad yep it's one of the craziest stories ever because the layers of it and the amount of obvious fuck-ups and it seems like the people were just so adamant about lynching leo frank because he was like a big shop factory owner, maybe because he was Jewish and had nothing to do with Mary Fagan at this well, point anymore. There's not attributed quotes right now to folks in the APD who were saying like, we, the, the, this town is so angry about this that like the blood of, the, and this is again, really fucked up. And again, like important to note the, con the context of the time. They basically said like hanging another black person is not going to, to be enough to, to quell this town. And that is like that is noted numerous times. That's like a line is, in the show. That is like a line in the play that I I tried to find the exact quote. It's hard to find. It's in Steve Oney's book somewhere. Um, it's fucked up. I mean, the whole thing is extremely fucked up. I mean, he was cooked first. First and foremost, it was cooked against Leo Frank from the jump. Yes. And and if it sounds like there's no evidence, uh, that's because there fucking was. There wasn't. Evidence. I know. I was like, how is he? What? But also like, I. But it's a case about public sentiment. Like, you know, that he was already guilty in the eyes of the public. And that still happens. And that still happens. Yeah. And he was. And, and, and he ended up literally facing, even after the law, like, uh, even after the law was saying, oh, we, like, fucked this up. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, even after the law is like, oh, we fucked this up. The people still were so hell-bent yeah. on the fact that he did it that they, like, fucking uh, got a team of people across multiple towns well, why to do you, kill him. Why do you think they were so certain it was him. I think that he was a guy that didn't, from all accounts, he didn't really fit in the community very well. Oh, right, right. And I think there was a lot of, like... Very To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, very much in the vein of... Yes, very much To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, he just... There's a lot of, like... They do a really nice job in the show of the emotionality of this, of, like, he really was, like... They said that, like, he was a very isolated, cold guy. One thing that really makes the whole thing like a little more disturbing is that he was very small. Uh -huh. He was like a short, wiry man. Yeah. 
And so like, you know, there was argument, there was, there was question of whether he would even have the physical strength to carry out True. something this brutal Dragging against this girl. this poor girl. Yes, right. Whereas, whereas the other two people that were suspects, obviously suspects, alleged, blah, 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 like they were physical laborers who would have had the strength to do that. Yeah. And we don't know. That's the fucked up thing is that like, ultimately, I wish that I could end this episode being like, I know I just told you the saddest shit ever for 50 minutes and I have. I... Don't understand people who are like, <laughs> we need to save our statues. America's history is important. Like, I, I hear this story and I'm like, why do we want to commemorate, like, how fucked up shit was back then? Like, right. it is, we are, America. But it shows you how little change, you know? Like, um, well, this yeah, happens all the I time. Mean, this exact fucking kind of thing happens, like, yeah. not, 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 you know, not obviously like the lynching of, a, a fucking no, Jewish but, factory owner, but like this, like trial by media, um, trial by public opinion. We've well, talked about it on this show. We know. I mean, Scott Peterson's the number one that comes to my mind, right? Because another case where I mean, you can listen to this episode where I don't think there was nearly enough evidence against him, but the media was like all about it. Yeah, and it really can't be understated the role that the media played in this. I mean, journalists were coming from like. We're coming from, like, New York City to report on this, you know? I feel like that happened a lot back then. <clears throat> Especially, I mean, this was, like, and this was a weird crime that, like, doesn't, this is a weird thing that doesn't get talked about, which is what bothers me so much because this is, like, such, understanding this puts so much into place of, like, I don't know, it, it says a lot about the, like, American justice landscape and the justice system that, like, it is so fucking arbitrary and, like, it's always been arbitrary and it's yep. always been trial by media and it's always been like, you know, the law, the, the U.S. police and yeah, kind of like, have a history of pinning it on innocent, weird people. Just you know? because they want it solved, it's easier. They want people to stop, you know, freaking out or feeling unsafe. So they're like, oh, this makes sense. Yep. I mean, and you saw it here where they made up. And they it literally... happens to people of color. Right. Usually. Which... Yeah. And which is what's another fucked yes. up element of this story. This yeah. is like such a mind fuck of a story. Right. Because like, like I said, with Jim Connolly, the lawyer that they hired, like, yes, that's a great lawyer to hire because that this kind of kind of fucked up shit of like white women accusing black men of shit in, in the American South during that time was rampant. And yes. men's lives were being ruined left and fucking right for it. Yeah. And so, yes, like hiring somebody that specializes in that is the right move in that in that instance. The That's whole thing true. is just like it's like I said, the socioeconomic like conditions around it all are also as big of a factor as any one individual. You know, if 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 Georgia hadn't become industrialized and the out of town like the hatred towards the factory workers and thus then it becoming misplaced at the at the hatred of the out of towners and the hatred then of what they assume to be Jewish people, like then maybe this would have never happened, right? Yeah. Like, if it happened today. Yeah, right. 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 Like, the socioeconomic um, structure and the, the location are as much an element um, in what happened as... Absolutely. ...as what happened itself. And that's where you, like, almost forget that a girl lost her life in this, and yeah. we don't know why. And the last thing I want to say is that there's been almost no evidence against Newt Lee, who's someone that we talked a lot about in this episode, and I think we talked about him a lot in regards to how he was viewed by the prosecution and not necessarily how he's been viewed by history. And history has sort of viewed Newt Lee to kind of have really been somebody who just stumbled upon this. I, that's how I feel. And unfortunately, you know, had his life upended by this for yeah. a while, too, when, you know, in reality, all signs point to Jim Connolly. That is true. He definitely had the most evidence against him. Yeah, and I just want, again, so I just based wanted on to that, make sure that, like, while we spend time being, like, you know, obviously what happened to Leo Frank is a fucking great injustice. What happened to Newt Lee is yeah, also a also, fucking absolute great injustice, you know? I feel like if it happened today, too, I think it probably very solvable. Seems like there was a lot of DNA. Yeah, there's a lot of DNA. There Everywhere. was a lot of, it seems like if there had been cameras, it would have probably been solved easily. Yeah, you know? exactly. Oh, yeah. But I, it just sounds like there was, um, it was a kind of, a, you know, you said there were fingerprints yeah. of blood. Uh-huh. Hello. But even, <laughs> even as simply, even something as simple as, like, being able to ID Jim Connolly's location. You know, if he said he was at saloons, like, if this was the future, if we were now, he used to check the security cams at all the bars. Be like, what fucking bars are you at? Uh, where did your phone ping at? Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So. 
Whew. my case for today. That's I don't a know long if I should. Whopper. Well, good. I mean, I'm glad it's long. I mean, a lot to talk about. And people need to know about the story because I didn't know about this story. I don't think. And with the amount of like true crime content I consume, I've never heard it been be covered i should look on spotify it's sort of an unsolved mystery i think more than anything. i was trying to i was like what do i call this episode true crime unsolved or dark history because kind of all three it is but i do a lot of uh we do dark history on here like for bloody mary and for um chernobyl so i was like this is kind of like giving me that vibe yeah and i think you know people if you're interested in learning more about this or you're interested in if this is an injustice that's sitting sitting with you wrong. I mean, you can always go support the ADL. They're a really wonderful organization that helps um, protect people from hate speech, especially Jewish people in this country. Uh, but, uh, you can listen to Jason Robert Brown's beautiful show about this case, which parade, um, because these took place around uh, Confederate Memorial Day and the Confederate Memorial Day parade. Uh, and you can obviously, of course, read Steve Oney's incredible writing on this topic in his book, In the Dead Shall Rise, which is available on Amazon and um, your local bookseller. Actually, hopefully they have it. I mean, you can also message Harrison and talk about your feelings towards it. Yeah, please. Thanks for letting me fucking host. Thank you. That was fun. And listeners, friends, let us know if you like Harrison telling stories. Did you like doing it? Yeah, I was stressed. I still feel like I'm it's like, hard, I feel like right? I left shit out. I feel like I missed stuff. I feel like, but as long as we got the main, yeah. the main arc of it and we, I tried to give everybody a fair shake. I will say it definitely takes practice. Yeah, fuck yeah, it does. Yeah. So, like, I think listening to back from old episodes, I think I've gotten better. Yeah, you sure have. Yeah, thanks for listening. Let us know if you like Harrison Thomas' story. He is a wonderful uh, storyteller, performer, person cat dad yeah and um you can follow the show at spooky show pod on instagram and twitter and rate and review on apple podcasts please um yeah last week was my birthday and i was made an instagram post like you want to get me a present rate review the show (laughs) (laughs) and we got like two ratings so thank you to those people um anything else uh if you want to follow me or harrison on social media It'll be linked down below. Listen to my podcast, stream my music. It'll all be linked down below. Yeah, or up above. Or up above. (laughs) And everyone have the best week of your entire life. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.